All right, man, I'm glad to have you here tonight as we start the season of Advent. Uh, and if you are one of those really, you know, big-time Christmassy people, and now that Thanksgiving is done, you may be tempted uh, to just skip right ahead to Christmas and just get there as fast as you can. But fear not, this is the first week of Advent, which is the prophecy week, uh, at, at which time uh, we come into this room, we say, uh, Behold, I bring you bad tidings of great distress. Uh, we will rob you of any sugar plums dancing in your heads the first week of Advent, right? First week of Advent is the prophecy week. It's the week where we look at texts that are full of doom and gloom, right? But it's important to remember that Advent, of course, is not Christmas. We say this every year. Advent is the time of anticipation. Advent is the season of longing, of wanting, of struggle for what will be, right? While Christmas may be the sweetness of holding a new baby, Advent is the end of the third trimester, Advent is the get this out of me phase of pregnancy. Advent is being in the hospital room and screaming at your husband, why did you do this to me? That is Advent. And tonight the text is telling the truth about that struggle before the birth happens, right? Before something beautiful is brought into this world, this text is about the struggle and how we respond to that struggle. Now before we unpack the verses tonight, before we look at them, I want to look at the context and function of prophetic texts in the Bible. And we won't take long, but it's important to talk about this context before we get into it. This, and this section in Scripture here in Luke 21 is a kind of a general prophetic text, right, that talks about this kind of apocalypse, little a apocalypse that's coming sometime. But it's coming right after a very specific warning, a very specific prophecy. Jesus just finished telling this original audience who's listening to his words that the temple will be destroyed, that the center of their religious life will go away, that all they understand about religious practice and, and what is supposed to be happening in the world is going to change on them. The world is going to shift underneath their feet, and they're going to have to figure it out. He's just broken this bad news to them, right? Uh, and, and then the first readers of, of the gospel of Luke who don't come to readers, of course, not written down and not, not passed around for a long time. The first readers will have just experienced the loss of the temple. Uh, they will be looking at it and going, wow, Jesus was completely right. No stone left unturned, right? No stone left on each other. And all these terrible things have happened. And they're trying to figure out what to do in the world after uh, this chaos. These first readers are living in the post-temple world. And they're still trying to reimagine things, right? But our portion of the reading tonight is about kind of a more general thing that happens, right? Our portion of the reading tonight um, is going to ring true to whoever is reading it at whatever point they are reading it. In other words, as we read about the confusion of, the, uh, of what creation is doing and, and all that's happening and how people are in dismay and how people are afraid, you will probably hear it and you will think, oh, that's us. That's happening to us. And you're right, because that's how this is supposed to function right? And you're in good company because every Christian, since this has been written, reads this text and thinks that same thing. In fact, the very first readers of it had great proof that that was true because it even goes on to say things like, you know, you will see this happening and you will not pass. You know, that, the big struggle that the early church had was that the apocalypse, the end of all things, Jesus coming back didn't happen immediately because all of them assumed it would. Paul works under that assumption in all of his writings, Right? But I say that to say 
that this is not intended to give you some kind of secret code to unlock uh, in order to figure out a certain time and date when this specific thing are going to happen. I think really the point for us is that this kind of thing will always be happening. And we will always need to learn how to navigate it. Our faith, our religion is never lived out or practiced in some perfect little vacuum. It's always in a very messy and broken world. And it will look, when it looks as though the world is going crazy, the question becomes, what do we do? How do we behave when the world is falling apart? With that in mind, let's, let's read again. Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 33 says this. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars. On the earth there will be dismay among nations in their confusion over the roaring of the sea and the surging waves. The planets and other heavenly bodies will be shaken, causing people to faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. Then they will see the human one coming on a cloud with power and great splendor. Now when these things begin to happen, stand up straight and raise your heads because your redemption is near. Jesus told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, you know that God's kingdom is near. I assure you, that this generation won't pass away until everything has happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will certainly not pass away. So here in the Gospel of Luke, we have these, this, this, again, not very Christmassy image, right? The world is in chaos. People are fainting from fear. There's foreboding for what is coming. And according to Luke, there's two options that we have when the world starts falling apart like this. The first one is we can faint the second one is we can stand up straight, raise our heads, and look for redemption. <coughs> Easier said than done, right? Let's talk about the fainting. Because when apocalypses are on their way, when the world is falling apart, our most natural and understandable response is fear. We get, a, we get afraid, right? <coughs> now, I am sensitive to the fact that you may have heard sermons like I heard growing up about the topic of fear and about what we're supposed to do when things get hard. And maybe you heard some that are pretty dismissive of the difficulties, right? We are people of faith. We are somehow above the world's problems and struggles. If you're afraid or nervous or anxious, then you're, you know, bad at faith. You're a bad Christian, blah, 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 blah. This is not that talk. Do you know why our natural response to the world falling apart is fear? The reason it's because it's freaking scary. It's really scary. This stuff can be legitimately terrifying because it is beyond our understanding and it is completely beyond our ability to control it. I now avoid reading about like climate change and what's coming. Not because I don't think it's true. I assume the scientists know more than I do because I know right about nothing. But it's scary. Like, I don't know what to do about it. I feel powerless. It kind of gives me this sense of dread, right? Every time I read about it, it's, it's terrifying, right? <coughs> Pandemics are frightening. It feels like we're going to go through the entire alphabet, Greek alphabet, doesn't it? Right? 
It's terrifying. Mass shootings are grotesque. Insurrections and conspiracy theories and tribalistic politics are all very disturbing and scary things. I read in an article a couple weeks ago that there's now a large percentage of both political parties that when asked think that we should divide the country into two separate countries because there's just no reconciling how different we are. That's how bad things have gotten. We've tried that before. It didn't go well. That is scary. I don't know what to do about that. All this stuff is frightening. Never mind our own personal struggles, never mind our own personal losses and all those kind of things. Just the world feels like it's falling apart. Merry Christmas. Right? So all of this is legitimately frightening. And fear is nothing if it is not powerful. Right? They say that fear seizes for a reason because it does feel like it violently takes us over, doesn't it? It tends to grab us and to turn us, and it tends to reorient everything else around it. And this is not an altogether always bad thing, right? If you're face-to-face with a hungry lion, this fear will serve you well. You will reprioritize everything else in your life in one moment in order to survive. Now, if you're facing a hungry lion, you're probably not going to make it. But that survival instinct, that fear that, that removes everything else can serve you well in certain circumstances, right? It's amazing what a healthy fear can help you accomplish. And we all know that, and we kind of like those stories. We all like movies or stories about guys who are stuck on islands or people who are facing impossible odds that would scare us to even imagine facing, right? A lot of you in this room paid or intentionally took a couple hours of your life to watch a movie based on a true story where a guy falls when he's rock climbing and then has to cut his own arm off. Who saw that movie? I didn't, that, wasn't a, that wasn't a joke to make you raise your hand, but um, that's terrifying, right? It's amazing what fear can make you do, what that fight or flight mechanism accomplishes within us, right? Healthy fear is a gift from God. There's nothing wrong. We're not looking for fearlessness. In fact, that doesn't even exist. We don't actually want that. I remember listening to this documentary uh, about this woman who had had a brain injury, and because of the brain injury, she was very literally fearless. That she, she didn't have that kind of fight or flight. There wasn't anything in her that warned her innately that things were dangerous or she was in trouble, and it had led to a lot of really dangerous situations, and she was kind of lucky to be alive several times over. She didn't recognize the risk. She didn't uh, address it and didn't react to it the way you should if you have a healthy fear, right? In the same way that leprosy is dangerous because you no longer feel pain and feeling pain is important for recognizing when things aren't right and for addressing those things, fear has a healthy place in our lives. But it gets out of control quick, doesn't it? It can become everything, right? That kind of fear changes us. It forms us into its own image. We become something else. You've seen it happen to yourself, and you've seen it happen to other people. I've seen it more in the last couple years than ever before. People who I know believe this and and feel strong about this and would only act like this, who have been so overcome with fear that they feel like they've become completely different people. Thomas Aquinas wrote, quote, from the very imagination that causes fear there ensues a certain contraction in the appetite, right? A contraction within us. 
In fact, the word he uses there for contraction is systole. It's where we get systolic, which is the tightening of the heart, right? The beat has the systolic part, which is when the heart compresses. It's a tightening. It's a contraction of the heart. Fear closes our hearts. In our passage tonight, Luke uses a Greek term that is translated here as faint, but what it literally means is to stop breathing People stop breathing from fear and foreboding of what is to come. The image here is that, of both of them, is that fear will stop us from doing the very things we need to survive. Fear will stop us from doing everything that we might otherwise do, even breathe. And I believe that's such a powerful reality. I've experienced it. I think you've experienced it too. And it's why fear is so prevalent around us. It's why it's so ubiquitous in every area of our lives. Fear is too powerful not to be abused. If you start to look around and see how people are using fear, you will see it everywhere, even in the benign, right? Essentially, all marketing, sorry if you're in marketing, but all marketing boils down to an attempt to make you afraid of something that you might not get or you might not buy or you might not get to experience, right? And and that's what makes the commercials really, really think about them so silly sometimes, how they're trying to provoke this fear of not trying the new hot Cheetos. Like that could be a real dangerous thing for your life to not try them. Marketing kind of boils down to that. Black Friday deals are rooted in a fear of missing out. I've been working in nonprofits or in churches for a long time, and I can tell you that most fundraising, at least most effective fundraising, is fear-based. I'll be honest, we'd have a lot more money as a church if we tried to make you scared about what would happen if you didn't give. We're not effective fundraisers because we don't really you know, do the fear thing very well. But in, in my other job, we're constantly sending checks to other uh, nonprofits and we kind of do charitable giving on behalf of our fund holders and all these, but we have hundreds of people that we're giving their charitable money on their behalf. And what that means is I see more fundraising materials than any human being should ever have to look at in their entire life because we get everyone's junk mail. It's, there's a couple people who the only reason they go through us is so that we get that mail. Because you know, in most charities, once you give to them once, you're, you, you can't die enough times to get off that list, Right? And my job involves cutting checks to these charities all over the world from others, not me. And we get every piece of mail. Every piece of mail. And I get them from every type of charity, religious group, political, nonprofit, you name it. Across the board, everything you can imagine, we write checks to, I get to see the mail that comes back. And I can assure you, this is scientific fact, I have done the research. I can assure you that they almost exclusively appeal to fear and not generosity. Every once in a while we get something that appeals to people's generosity. Almost all of it is about fear. They start with how frightening it will be if you don't give to them. Even when they're thanking you for the gift you just sent them, they're warning you about what happens if there's not another one soon. All your worst nightmares will come true, right? Those people will take over the government or will come in and take over your church or they're going to kick down your door and steal your kids and your money. Be afraid or write a check and feel good about the world again. It's stupid, except it's incredibly effective. Right? Send money or your worst nightmares will become a reality and if you don't know what your nightmares are yet, I'll be happy to inform you. I'm telling you, it's effective. Again, I signed the checks, right? 
it's effective because I promise you fundraisers would not spend all the money it takes on those mailers if it didn't get paid for tenfold. Fear works. Who would be honest in this room? I will be honest and say this is true of me. And would raise their hands and confess that in the last couple of national elections, I voted against the person I feared more so than for the person I really believed in. About half of you, the other half are lying. Okay. No, I feel like every time I have a conversation with someone about national politics, that's what they're like. They're not like, man, that person, that's my person. I just believe in them, and they're like, I'm just scared to death of that one. Fear works. Fear motivates us, it moves us, it causes us to act, even in ways that we wouldn't normally. This week we watched a couple court cases centered on the killing of people who should still be here. And why are they dead? I would argue they're dead because of fear. They're dead because of fear. Whatever you think about Kyle Rittenhouse or the legalities of his acquittal, I'm not a lawyer, I don't understand why it was legal or what, Maybe it was. I don't know. But there's no doubt to me that he was a scared kid. There's other people armed, other people walking around him, other people in the exact same situation he is who didn't shoot anybody. Why did he shoot? Was he there just to hunt people? I think he was scared. He was a scared 17-year-old kid, which is probably a pretty good argument for not arming him and sending him into a crowd. He was scared. Then you have three men who chase down Ahmaud Arbery. They outnumber him, they threaten him, they initiate conflict with him, and then they shoot him because they're scared he's going to do something to them. doesn't make any sense at all, but that's what fear does. Fear tells you that the guy who's running in a neighborhood doing nothing is somehow a threat to you when he's not. This is what fear does. It poisons our entire view of the world and each other. Fear makes us contract. Fear makes us defend ourselves to hunker down against perceived threats. It begets violence and suspicion in the demonization of our neighbors and enmity. In other words, fear produces all the polar opposite attributes that Jesus asked us to to, uh, embody in this world. That's why most often repeated command of the New Testament is fear not. That's why we learned that perfect love drives out fear, right? Because there is an alternative. This world is a fearful place, but there's an alternative. When the world looks as though it's falling apart, Luke says, don't be afraid, don't contract, don't hold your breath and faint from fear and foreboding. When the world is falling apart, stand up straight, raise your head, and look for your redemption. Stand up straight and raise your head and look for your redemption. While fearlessness is a myth, it is possible to see the trouble, to see the problems for what they are, to be honest about them and not Pollyanna, but still not be controlled by it, still not be owned by it. We don't have to be enslaved and formed by fear. Even the very real fear, even the very real threats that are out there. Are things scary? Yes. Are they painful? Absolutely. Can bad things happen? No doubt. But we are people not ordered by fear. The truth is, a person can simply not live out the moral life that Christ instructed us to live out and be motivated or governed by fear. You can't do it. 
You cannot have an open heart and one that is contracted by fear. You cannot be animated by God's breath and hold your own breath at the same time. I cannot love and fear my enemy. I cannot be hospitable and suspicious at the same time. I cannot be generous or forgiving or courageous or sacrificial while being guided and governed by fear. We can't batten down the hatches and still be the called out ones. It is scary out there. I don't know what's happening next. I may have every reason legitimately to be afraid. But we are people of faith. We feel fear. We see things for what they are, but we are not controlled by it. Again, I'm not talking about pretending like nothing is wrong. There's plenty of real and scary stuff going on. Our eyes are open to the reality of the world. It is not about being out of touch with what is broken or not caring that threats actually exist. It is a refusal to be subject to the fear that makes things infinitely worse. It is about being a people who stand up straight when everyone else bunkers down. It is about being a people who raise their heads and look out when everyone else is lost in the mess and looking at their own feet. It is about being a people who know that wherever there is sin and darkness and brokenness and all manner of breathtaking evil, redemption is drawing near. God is with us. There is life There is beauty on the other side of these labor pains. And we can live the lives of grace and kindness and generosity that that hope warrants. Has there been a better time for people of faith to stand up straight and offer an alternative to this contracting, shrinking world? But I'm afraid instead we as Christians in general are known more for sounding the alarm, for circling the wagons, for crying out in fear, for stoking all that anger and fear that yes, will motivate many people. It just won't motivate them to love. It's ugly out there. Labor pains are no joke. But hold your head up. Open your eyes. The kingdom of God is closer than you think. Let's pray.